Now, first, you talked in the book, and you had a lovely section about how our homes are, in a way, their own ecosystems, a microcosm of the world. What do you mean when you say that our homes are a microcosm of the world? Well, so if you think about a, a home, you have a, a bunch of conditions in your house that are like conditions outdoors. They may not seem that way from your scale. So, you know, as humans, we're we're huge. And, and so we imagine the refrigerator couldn't possibly be a habitat. But from the perspective of bacteria or protists or even some little teeny arthropods, the freezer is a whole world. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Do you keep your house clean? Like, really clean? Do you gently escort any spiders outside, microwave your sponges, clean your cat's litter box daily, and change the air filters on your HVAC? Do you think that this means your house is a haven, safe from mold and evil bacterial films and spiders that crawl in your mouth when you sleep? Well, I hate to tell you this but you're never home alone. And as our guest today would argue, that's a very good thing. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of microcosm of Arctic worlds. And your oven is a microcosm of the hottest conditions in which we can imagine life living. And your salt shaker is a microcosm of really extreme salt places elsewhere in the world. And your dishwasher is a microcosm of those places that are hot and then cold and then uh, really alkaline and then not alkaline and then wet and then dry. And, and so in that way, your house contains all of these different biological worlds that we, we readily overlook because we're sort of scanning the, the, uh, the big things and, and fail to realize what we've created. I'm here today with Rob Dunn, an applied ecologist at North Carolina State University and author of the book Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live. Well, I have to say that if your fridge is anything like my fridge, I have no trouble believing that there's an ecosystem living in my fridge. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, all of our fridges are eco ecosystems. I mean, it's the whole... In a way, what we aim to do with something like a refrigerator is not to get rid of life, but it's to control which species win and which species lose and over what time scales. Well, so I just mean I need to clean my fridge. <laughs> 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 things are uh, growing in there. <laughs> that's okay. They're always growing in there. It's just it's which things that matter. You know, if they start to have little like – if you have fungi, they're growing hats and, and little uh, – accoutrement, then, then it's time to clean, probably. <laughs> Great. I know what I'm doing after this. Now, you're an ecologist. Um, you've done really wide-ranging work on bacteria and yeast and bugs and dogs, and it seems like every single phyla, in a way. And this, the thing that links these, you know, seemingly disparate organisms together is that these are about the ecology of people's homes. Why did you decide to focus on the ecology of people's homes? Well, so I, I started off as a rainforest ecologist. And so I w worked in Bolivia and Costa Rica and Australia and Peru. And, and a lot of the work that I did there was at the interface of rainforests and, and the daily lives of people who lived in rainforests. But, but I focused on really you know, for as much as I was always staying with families, I was working in farms, the, everything I'd been trained to do was to focus on the rarest, most unusual things, 
and to sort of push humans as much out of the picture as I could. And that's how ecologists and evolutionary biologists are trained. We're trained to be like Darwin, to go far away and think about remote uh, sort of um, remote things removed from daily life. And so when I got my faculty job at North Carolina State University, that's largely what I was still doing, thinking about the general rules that govern tropical life, why there are some spe- more species some places, fewer in other places, why there are more predators some places, why there are more parasites some places. These sort of things that we man- might imagine pertain to life wherever we find it. But, but I found myself when I got to North Carolina State working among colleagues who could do useful things. And so I'd be thinking about some obscure ant and they'd make more fish. I'd be thinking about some beetle that rides in an obscure ant and they would make more bread. And, and, and so very quickly it became apparent that, that it, would be, it would be nice to have some more useful piece to what I was doing. But I couldn't imagine what that would be early in my career. But as I started to work as, a, as an assistant professor, I had students that started to do work right around campus. Rather than working in rainforests where I used to work, they would work you know, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as they did, they started to discover new species in people's new backyards, new phenomena in people's backyards. We had a 17-year-old student who found an ant species that had never, ever been seen alive um, behind our biology building, first one ever to see it alive. And so that started to convince me that, well, maybe there were more basic discoveries to be made than I realized right where I was living. But it was still very basic work. It wasn't applied. It was just the beauty of the the ecology and the evolution of these organisms. And then slowly we started to creep toward people's doors. and, And we would give talks about the basic biology of backyards and back porches and what I'd hoped in those moments was, was that people would say, well, ooh, it's so interesting, the ancient stories of these ants or of these beetles. And what people would inevitably say at the end of talks was, um, what do I do about the ants in my kitchen? Uh, how do I get this thing to stop growing in my refrigerator? And, and what I first heard when I started to do that work was, was basically, you know, the it was sort of the ecologist version of, Hey, would you check out my rash? Like it drove me nuts. (laughs) And like, I don't want to see your rash. I don't want to control your ants in your kitchen. Like I love the ants. I think they're beautiful and fascinating. But, but what I came to realize was what people were really saying was after your boring hour long talk, the only way this possibly relates to my daily life is in thinking about how to control these ants. And so it was in that context that we started to actually move into houses and to start to think both about the beautiful basic biology of these species and about what use we might make of starting to understand what they are doing in your kitchen. And we still can't tell people how to control things, but we can tell people about how to live in their homes in a way that I'm happy. I was particularly struck by a point you you just made, but also by a point that, that this was made, you made this point in your book several times, that ecologists tend to ignore homes and cities. You know, they tend to focus on the wild forests of Costa Rica, you know, and because to them, as to all of us, 
homes, houses are not natural. They're kind of the opposite of natural. Why do you think we kind of feel that way? Why have we blotted out the idea of our homes as kind of natural places? Well, I, I think there are probably a bunch of things going on there. I mean, one is that, you know, for hundreds of years, to explore has meant to go somewhere that's far away. And, and so I think that sense of the explorer is still baked into the, much of the science that we do, that you you go remote from where you live in order to do science. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I think another part is that once we figured out that some of the species in our house could kill us, um, th th then we, we, we began to think that the main way we should interact with that life is, is to try to control it, to try to get rid of it. And that meant that the scientists who studied the life in houses tended to be scientists whose main job was to understand how to kill things. And so the building next to my building is a building full of entomologists. And it's changing. But 20 years ago, most of the people in that building, their job would have been to figure out how to kill a specific kind of uh, insect that either lived in a farm or in a house. And so we kind of we shifted what we studied in houses and then we kept this old idea that to explore was to go far away. And both of those things together meant that we didn't leave anybody in the house to just sort of poke around and find fun stuff. And I wonder how much of that is also that for a long time, you know, for example, we talk about Darwin voyaging forth to discover things. Um, but for a long time, people didn't really realize kind of how much life was around us because we were limited to what we could actually see with our naked eyes, you know, and we can't see these, these microbes that are coating every surface of our house unless the ones in our fridge get out of control on our week and a half old Chinese food. Not that I know anything about that personally. Anyway. <laughs> um, Is it weird that that made me hungry? <laughs> just microwave it. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, you have a lovely segment um, in your book about von Leeuwenhoek, uh, the great microscopist, um, and how he changed the view of what was living around us. And I wondered if you could talk about the contributions he made to kind of the ecosystem of our houses and how we understood that. Yeah, I mean, he, he was really wonderful. And I mean, I've written about him a lot, and I still don't really understand him, what made him so different from everybody else. But he 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 was born and lived his entire life in the town of Delft in the Netherlands that's mostly known for painters. So it's Vermeer's town. Um, it's Terhoek's town. Um, at the time that Leeuwenhoek was living, there would have been, you know, 50 relatively prominent painters in the town. And it was a, not that huge, 10,000 or 20,000 people uh, maximum. And he, he started off as a, as a draper. He worked with textiles and then he got kind of a, you know, a well-paying government job that gave him free time. And at some point he, uh, picked up a single lensed microscope. He didn't invent it. Everybody always says he invented microscopes. He didn't invent them, but he, he picked one up and he started to use it to look around his house. And as he did, he started to see things that he hadn't seen before. And he would eventually uh, write a letter to the Royal Society in London, basically asking, you know, hey, I found this cool stuff. 
do you guys think it's neat too? Do you think we could be like science pen pals? And they, and initially they said, oh, you know, maybe, but, but eventually they did become science pen pals and essentially the Royal Society would give him missions, go forth and look at this. And, and he began to explore his daily world in general. So, you know, they went to the fish market, he went to the little uh, canal outside of his house in Delft. But a, a lot of what he did was to explore his own house. And so he looked in salt. He looked in pepper water. Um, he looked at his own sperm, his neighbor's sperm, his own mouth, his neighbor's mouth. That's that's a really close neighbor. Yeah. Times change. Um, <laughs> but, but, but so as he did, he started to see not just things that were kind of new to science, but whole new kinds of life. And so he saw protists for the first time, these um, single-celled life forms with, with, with a nucleus, um, but that were moving around and, and behaving as much as if they had a mind. And he loved the protists, and so he would document many, many species of these protists um, as he began to look around his daily life. And then in pepper water, in just ordinary pepper put in water, he saw bacteria for the first time ever. And then he saw parasitoids for the first time ever, which are uh, insects that lay their eggs in the bodies of other insects. And he would he would then go on to see many, many, many things for the first time ever. And in doing so, kind of describe around him an entire circus of life that no one had ever seen before. And and realistically, during his entire life and for the next 150 years, nobody else saw firsthand either. You know, people would people would repeat individual experiments that he did, but nobody did the whole thing. And so it was like he discovered a world that was just his, his private microscopic world. Um, and he loved it. You know, he, he couldn't get enough of it. He died looking at it um, and... Uh, you know, if he would have lived another 30 years, he would have kept looking at it, I'm, I'm totally sure. Uh, and, so, and so he was really the forefather, the foreparent of, of studying the life in houses. Um, but when he died, nobody took up where he left off. And so for 100, 150 years, there were very, very few studies of, of microbes or even just small species in houses. Yeah, I was especially interested to find um, that at first people actually couldn't replicate his findings. Like they tried and they couldn't see what he saw. And this is kind of amusing to me because, of course, in research now, if you can't replicate somebody's findings, well, you know, that's that's like bad news. But in fact, they did end up replicating. Why couldn't people see what he saw at first? Um, you know, his microscope was a little bit different. Um, he was using it in a very specific way, the way he was using it, the way he was, the way he combined the lens that he had with, um, manipulation of light seemed to be different than what other people were doing. We're, we're left to guess a little bit because we, we don't have a detailed uh, description of exactly what he was doing and how it was different from what the other scientists were doing. But I think the other thing is that by the time that he he was sending his uh, drawings and letters to the Royal Society, he'd been looking through a microscope much more than um, 
probably all but a teeny handful of other people in the world. And so he, he, he probably also had an ability in his mind to, to interpolate um, sort of gaps in what he was seeing. And so, you, you know, maybe he saw two edges of something and the middle was blurry, but he'd seen enough that he could sort of piece together the middle. And so what he was showing the Royal Society and what he was describing were drawings that in a way he suggested depicted a moment, but really there were kind of collective montages of what he'd seen over many moments. And, and, and so maybe in that way it was actually kind of impossible to see exactly what he described because it wasn't a single view. But now, of course, you know, thanks to him and, and thanks to many, many other people over, you know, a couple hundred years, uh, we now know we are surrounded by bacteria. And what really fascinated me was that some of this bacteria is from places I would never expect. Um, so, for example, there are bacteria that are found only in hot springs and in our hot water heaters in our houses. <laughs> Can you talk about these bacteria? How do they get there? Because most people, most people's hot water heaters have probably never been on vacation to Yellowstone. So how, how are they getting there? I mean, to be totally honest, I have no idea. No, no one has any idea. So these are bacteria that when, when we used to culture bacteria 30 years ago, people would sort of do it using temperatures that were like temperatures that the scientists themselves would like. So basically, like, ooh, this is a nice temperature. Let's see what grows. And, and so as a result, uh, we didn't see a lot of the bacteria that were all around us because a, a lot of the species require temperatures that are higher or lower than what scientists thought were sort of normal growing conditions. And so it took a while for that reason to discover the bacteria growing in hot water heaters. Um, and those same bacteria uh, would ultimately um, be used as part of the tool that we now use to do every genetic test you've ever thought of. You know, the, if you want to test who your parents are, if you want to test, is that really the fish I think it is? Um, all of those genetic tests are done using an enzyme that actually comes from the same group of bacteria that are in hot water heaters and hot springs. And so it's super useful. But the the craziest thing to me about it is that there have now been three published studies in the entire world on these bacteria and water heaters. And all they've done for the most part so far is to document that they're common. We know nothing about what they're doing in water heaters. We know nothing about how they get there. They're just there. And so this to me is one of the amazing things about the life in houses is that we're so... I mean, there's just so much to study that something super obvious and, and you know, endearing like these hot water heater microbes, like there's not a single student in the world studying them today, as far as I'm aware. Wow, that's kind of sad. <laughs> and you also, I, mean, I was wondering if you could kind of give us a brief rundown. You mentioned a little bit um, in the beginning that there are, you know, microbes in our ovens, in our refrigerators, <laughs> in our freezers. I mean, what kind of microbial species, or even just broader families, because I imagine species would take a while, what kind of microbes are kind of hanging in our houses? Well, well, so, I mean, overall, we found more than 100,000 kinds of just bacteria, not to mention 
fungi in houses. And so lots and lots of kinds. Um, the, the more you seal up your house, the more the, the species tend to be dominated by things that fall off of us um, or rely on our food. And so um, one of my colleagues sampled the space station uh, using the same sort of approach we use to sample houses. And the space station is full of stuff that's fallen off the astronauts or the astronauts' food or, or that's actually just eating the space station. And, and so that's kind of one extreme of what could live in your house. If you live in an apartment in Manhattan and the windows never open and you scrub everything, that's what you get. It looks like a person kind of dissolved. Um, and at the other extreme, if you open your windows, if there's a lot of flow from inside to outside, if you have a dog, you start to pull in a bunch of other kinds of microbes that are um, probably historically were very common around us and that today are, are more rare. And so um, whether or not you have a dog in your house explains 40% of the variation we see house to house in microbes because they pull in so many unusual microbes we don't otherwise see in houses. Um, if you open your window, you get all kinds of leaf-associated things. If you ferment sourdough, you get lactobacillus bacteria that become really, really common. If you're making beer, yeast pour out of the beer through your house. And so, so they, ref they reflect how we live, and each person's house is a little bit different. I have to say that... Um you have a section on the International Space Station and how it's kind of full of the microbes of astronauts <laughs> kind of falling off them. And that actually kind of feels more gross to me than like the water and soil and food bacteria in our own homes to know that astronauts are kind of floating surrounded by their own armpit microbes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, um, in some ways it should seem gross in the sense that I think when, when we imagine the future, very often we imagine a world that's a lot like the space station. We imagine that we've kind of sealed off life, that our farms are far away somewhere, that food comes to us, and we live mostly indoors. Um, and that's, I mean, we're moving very quickly toward that future. And this, what the space station tells us is that microbiologically, it's a problematic future. Um, you know, that if we live like that, we won't get rid of the microbial life around us. I mean, there are even dust mites in the space station. Um, so it's not even just bacteria. Uh, and, and that we'll, we'll favor a world that's really dominated by our own falling apart. And I, I think that probably that's not what we want for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that if we want our immune systems to function uh, reasonably and not attack our own bodies and not cause us to have allergies and asthma and Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel, and multiple sclerosis, um, there are a bunch of species of bacteria we need to be exposed to. And that space station model doesn't allow for that to happen. And so I, in some ways, what should gross, it, it should gross you out, the space station, but what should gross you out is not that they're, you know, floating through their own falling apart but instead that they're failing to float through the kinds of species that we've floated through, floated, walked through, you know, sat on, um, eaten for millions and millions of years, that they're disconnected in a way that's grotesque. And one of the uh, parts of your book that actually kind of brought home just how much we're kind of walking around in this kind of 
culture of bacteria in a way is, is the bit that you wrote about biofilms coming out of our shower heads. <laughs> And I stared at my shower head for a good five minutes after reading this part of your book. Can you tell me really quick what a biofilm is? Because I was a little a little boggled by this. Yeah, imagine that you and your friends could get together and you could poop an apartment. That's what a biofilm is. And so the bacteria get together across – maybe that's a – just a gross analogy, but that's what happens. No, it is so the, wonderful. It is wonderful in every so, way. So, so, so they get together and they build this apartment, um, and it protects them. And they and the, it's different species working together. It's a pretty cool um, biological phenomenon, and it happens all over the place. Um, and in the context of a shower head, they build that apartment because it protects them from the flow of water. And so they live in that apartment, and it keeps them from being washed away. And when the showerhead gets really dry, it keeps them a little bit moist. Um, when the showerhead uh, gets really hot, it buffers temperature probably even a little bit. And it allows them to persist. And so if you unscrew your showerhead and you see gunk in there, that's biofilm. Uh, I should have said that at the beginning, that biofilm is a fancy word for gunk. <laughs> bacterial poo apartments is where I'm going. That's right. why, yeah, that's, that's the that's definition good. I'm keeping forever. That's, 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 let's, we, we can stick with that one. Um, <laughs> and, and so, um, we, we've, I've worked with Noah Fear and other folks at the university of Colorado and they're, they're about to sample shower heads around the world. And in, in doing so, um, we see what we already knew, which is that everybody's shower head has a biofilm. Some are thicker, some are thinner, but it's always there. And what differs from one showerhead to the next is which species are in that biofilm. And so that's what we were trying to figure out. Could we predict which species would be in that that little apartment? Well, and most species of the bacteria, both floating around in our daily lives and also probably making up the biofilms of our showerheads, are pretty harmless. But actually, one of the bacteria that you were looking at um, in the showerhead is actually can be harmful to some populations, right? Yeah. So this is a, tr a tricky bit. I mean, so, you know, Leeuwenhoek found wonder in the life around him. And then when people figured out germ theory that some of these species could kill us, the wonder all went away. And, and so I think it's important to maintain both a sense of wonder and, um, and at the same time, uh, a sense of urgency that that we need to understand the, the few species that live in our homes that can cause problems. And so if, if, just to think about the numbers for a second, if we found 100,000 species or so in houses, maximum 20 of those species are regularly harmful to humans. And so the vast majority are either benign or actually beneficial. And the same is true in your tap water, but... There's a group of bacteria called non-tuberculous mycobacteria that have become apparently more common in showerheads in particular and in, in piping in general. And for people who are immunocompromised and a few other subsets of the population, those bacteria can cause problems. Um, for, for most people, even if they're there, they don't cause problems. But there are actually a lot of people who are immunocompromised. And so it's, you know, that segment of the population is a not insignificant um, uh, group. And, and so one of the things we we're trying to figure out is what makes those non-tuberculous mycobacteria common. 
But even that question is really tricky because some of the non-tuberculous mycobacteria are problematic sometimes, and some of them appear to actually be beneficial. And we don't quite know enough yet to distinguish those two groups very readily. And, and so this is the, the trick with, the, you know, we, we know so little about the biological world that every time we get close enough that we almost think we understand what's going on, we zoom in a little bit more and it goes out of focus again. But what we've, we've found so far with the shower heads is that it looks like water systems that are more chlorinated tend to have more of the non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which is not to say they're less healthy, but they're different. Um, and what we think is happening is that the chlorination is actually killing a lot of the chlorine-tolerant bacteria, but the non-tuberculous mycobacteria are chlor chlorine-tolerant, and so that they're hanging out and they're doing fine. Um, and so we're sort of inadvertently favoring them with our water systems. But the super tricky bit about that is um, once we screw up the aquifers from which our water is coming from, once they become polluted uh, either with toxins or with our own waste, we have to do water treatment. We don't have another choice. And, and so in some ways, the ideal water system is to have what Vienna has, which is underground aquifers that haven't been screwed up yet that the water comes out of and, and doesn't need to be treated. Um, and that seems like a pretty optimal solution, but it's only possible if we don't screw things up first, or if we don't move to places like Arizona that basically don't have water. And so it's got to be pumped in from surface water regardless. So it's tricky. Now, Rob, we've been talking about the bacteria that seem to coat every single aspect of our lives. You've led a lot of citizen science projects to learn about this, where you have people swab their houses and learn about their results. How do people generally react when they learn about what is hanging out in their homes? Um, it's a mix. Uh, I would say that, you know, People who sign up to learn about their homes, they generally, generally have some general interest in, uh, in the life that we might find. And so they're at least a little bit intrigued by it. Um, uh, but I think it's very different. I mean, the two ends of the spectrum would be the showerhead and sourdough. And so we've done a lot of work figuring out what determines which microbes establish in a sourdough starter. If you make you mix flour and water and they start to bubble and they, they make a starter you can use to make bread. Where do those microbes come from? And so when we've told people about their sourdough starters, um, people are super excited because uh, there's a sense that, that this is something beautiful. It's a kind of garden and they're knowing more about it, that they can appreciate the flavors of it. Um, and so there's this really sort of happy response to it. Oh, I know a if, lot of people who think of sourdough starters as kind of their pets. Like they give them names and like you have feelings about them. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. And so that's that's one 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 end of the extreme. And that's I mean, that's sort of the best for us because it makes the work um, fun always. I mean, all the sourdough emails are always fun. Um, the opposite extreme would be the showerhead uh, work. Where because it has this potential medical element, um, I think it's hard to talk about and, and to, to think about once you know what's living in your showerhead, what do you then do about that? And one tricky part there was that 
when we started the study, we didn't know if the biggest determinants of what lives in your shower head would be things that people do in their homes or, or things that happen with the water system. And if it was things that people were doing in their homes, we could have offered practical advice for what you do in your house to change what's in your biofilm. I mean, what's in your shower head. Um, but it wasn't, it mostly had to do with your water system. And, and that sucks because we have, I mean, the average person has no agency, no control over what's happening with their water system. And, and so that's a really, tr that's a much trickier conversation. Um, and, and so I, I would say that, um, you know, th those emails run the gamut and, and people can be quite sad to learn about what's in their shower head, I think sometimes. And then most of the work we do is sort of in between those two. So what's in the dust in your home? I would say some, some of those things people don't like and, and, uh, but most of the time people are finding some wonder, but I think that in the, in the end, you know, we can't escape the fact that we're surrounded by life. Um, and whenever we try to, uh, it's to our own detriment. And so I think even when those conversations are hard, I'm glad to be having them. Yeah, you've mentioned both in the book and also in this conversation, for a long time, we've kind of had this adversarial relationship with the bacteria kind of in our homes. Basically, we're like, okay, what is it? And how do we kill it? <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what this is. I wonder how I kill it. Um, yeah. And as you point out in your book, these bacteria, not all of them, are bad. And in fact, they can be necessary. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the hygiene hypothesis, which I think probably listeners have maybe heard of, but may not necessarily know where it comes from and what exactly it means. Yeah, so, so there are a bunch of related hypotheses. The hygiene hypothesis is one of them that all generally relate to the idea um, that by sealing ourselves indoors and failing to be exposed to the kinds of bacteria and other species we used to be exposed to for millions of years, um, that we've screwed up our immune systems. And the different hypotheses, there's, there's a biodiversity hypothesis, which I read about a fair amount, um, versus the hygiene hypothesis. They differ as to... Um, the mechanisms by which failing to interact with those species make us sick. But, but they all sort of agree with the idea that, that something about the change um, in our exposures is indeed making us sick. And, and they all also agree with in the sense that they, they all um, – they all more or less posit that our immune system and not being exposed to the species it used to be exposed to is, is kind of getting bored. And in being bored, it's attacking the thing that's immediate to us, which is it's our own bodies. Um, and so if you look in regions where we've sealed ourselves in our houses more completely, where we've um, gotten rid of more of the biodiversity in our backyards, you see a consistent rise in asthma and allergy um, in Crohn's disease and MS over the last 40 years. Um, and this is true, for example, on the border of Finland and Russia and the Karelia region, which before World War II was all the same political region and the same people. And then after the war, it was divided in two. And the Finnish side sort of underwent this Western trajectory of everybody moving indoors and, you know, 
basically clearing the biodiversity out from around the house. And the Russian side changed relatively little in the, the, uh, the post-war years in terms of how people live. And on the Russian side, there's been no increase in allergy and asthma since World War II. And on the Finnish side, there's been an increase in every decade since, since at least 1960. And so we're seeing versions of that again and again and around the world. And so I think it'll take us another 50 years to understand exactly what's happening. But it seems very clear that if we fail to be exposed uh, to a diversity of kinds of microbes, of soil microbes, of leaf microbes, of other things, that it's, it really messes us up and influences. And I was really interested to find out that I know, I know it's kind of coming in vogue now, the idea that, you know, microbiomes are incredibly important things to have and exposure to certain microbes is, you know, a really super important thing. Um, but, I always thought of this as kind of being a new fad, the microbiome fad, but apparently it's really not. Some scientists had this idea that you needed to dose newborn babies with bacteria in the 1950s. And I have to say that like my ethics meter kind of dinged <laughs> over this study, but it's absolutely fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about how these scientists tried to inoculate babies and why they were trying to do this long before we really understood the value of our microbiomes. So Henry Scheinfeld and a, and a colleague uh, were working in a hospital in New York. And in that hospital, they, they started to see newborn babies that were getting staph infections. Um, and they noticed that the newborn babies that got the staph infection seemed to have all been touched by the same nurse. But they also noticed that if the babies were touched in the first day of their life, they seemed to get the infection. But if they were touched in the second day of their life, they didn't, or they were less likely to. And, and so what they posited um, was that what was happening was that during that first day, the babies that weren't yet infected with the the bad staph microbes, Staphylococcus aureus, some bad strains. Um, I think it was 8081 was yeah, the bad 80, strain. Yeah, 8081. Um, that those babies were being colonized by other bacteria that were fighting off the 8081. And the story is told, told in the book in, in some length, but, but the, what, what then happens next is basically – that they find a microbe that they think is a good one uh, as a competitor, and they eventually start to inoculate newborn babies with that microbe to try to prevent that Staph aureus 8081 from colonizing those babies. And it worked. Um, and it spread hospital to hospital, this approach. And it, it basically, from those hospitals, um, got rid of uh, infections due to that strain of Staph aureus. And then um, a variety of things happened, but one of them was that methicillin became cheap and easy to use as an antibiotic. And so rather than doing this gardening technique, hospitals just started um, giving antibiotics uh, like they were candy when infections turned up. And at that time, everybody knew that was a bad plan. People knew, you know, Fleming knew it was a bad plan 20 years earlier and people knew it was a bad plan because what was going to happen was that uh, strains of staph would evolve that were resistant to the antibiotics, 
And then they would be able to do even better than they'd done before. And that's and actually that's, what we call MRSA now is yeah, methicillin resistant. Yep, that's MRSA. And so I think that, and, and there, there's a longer conversation to be had about the ethics of those, um, of that work. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that, uh, if we consider the ethics of inoculating newborns with a, with a beneficial microbe, we should also consider the ethics of giving newborns that have staph infections an antibiotic. And how do we think about those two things and the, the relative costs and benefits of those two things? And I think it's a way more complex ethical topography than we tend to think. Um, and and I, I think in many ways we seem to have chosen the wrong road in that moment when methylacillin became cheap. And as a result, we face lots of problems with antibiotic resistance now. Yeah. So one of the things I that really struck me about that story is these these doctors went hospital to hospital around the country with vials of this good staff to prevent bad staff. Um, and I think I think the strain they chose was 502A, something yeah, like that's that. Right. Um, and they just went around inoculating babies in the 1950s. These some of these kids are alive. Like, I'm sure there are a bunch of these people are adults now. I wonder, did they, was there any longitudinal follow up? Do we know how well those patients are doing compared to people who didn't get that inoculation? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, uh, th- there was longitudinal follow up in, in the sixties and seventies of some of those patients. And it was shown that, that many of those patients were able to keep the, the 502A, um, but what happened over the next decades is, as far as I know, it's unknown, um, but would be fascinating. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, you could, you know, there might be very different trajectories for those two groups. I mean, I think the the broader experiment we're doing right now that, um, in many ways, is more analogous than we'd like to think is the rise in C-section births, um, because C-section births. Uh, those babies get a very different inoculum of both gut and skin microbes than vaginal birth babies. And so that's essentially an experimental gardening of microbes on two sets of babies gardening with very, very different microbes. Um, and there are some longitudinal studies now for, for that comparison. And people are also talking about it and doing a few experiments, uh, smearing babies with like kind of positive microbiomes after C-section. So it, it's kind of like that fad is kind of coming around again. Yeah. I mean, and you'd be hard pressed to, to well, I'll put it the other way. It's not uncommon to meet microbiologists who, who've, who've stored up feces um, in the event that they, uh, they have a C-section to colonize their newborn. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. And I want to meet those microbiologists. So I also have to say that story, um, there was a nurse, it was one particular nurse, and she had this harmful staff um, infection, this 8081. It was just like living harmlessly in her nose. And she didn't know, you know, it's, it's not like she was nefariously going around. But of course, she was fired, <laughs> or at least transferred. I, I wonder what happened to her. Does anybody know? I, I couldn't figure out what happened to her. I was able to. So there was there were two nurses. There was the nurse with the bad nose and the nurse with a good nose. 
And the nurse with the good nose, she's the one that the 502A came from. And I was able to follow her story a little bit. Um, and she can, she continued to work as a nurse and her microbes colonized babies all across America. Um, does, does she know about it? She's, she's no longer alive, but she knew about it in, in those, those years. Yes. But I just, I, I, that poor nurse with the 8081, can you imagine? Cause you go into nursing cause you love people and you love babies and to know that you were infecting them with a bad microbe. I mean, that would have been really devastating. Yeah. And I, yeah. It's but just anyway, a sad story. It is. I'm sorry. Let's about. turn this around. <laughs> now, if there's a big message to your book, it's that there is a benefit to biodiversity in our houses, in our homes, and not just for things like bacteria, but also for things like spiders and camel crickets and roaches. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how to promote home biodiversity. You know, what do you what do you do to like make sure you have a healthy home biome? Well, I mean, there are things that we know are beneficial and things that we can infer uh, might be beneficial and are not harmful. And and so, um, you know, opening your windows to let outdoor microbes and teeny tiny species in, um, you know, letting spiders be in your house, uh, making fermented foods that enrich your house with the, the living microbes of those foods. So cheeses and yogurts and kimchis um, and sourdough and, and all those sorts of things. Making sure to do the things that keep us healthy in terms of public health. So washing your hands with soap and water. If you have a bacterial infection and a doctor prescribes an antibiotic for that infection, taking the antibiotic, um, getting vaccinated, but not using pesticides, herbicides, antimicrobials willy-nilly when there's not an acute need. I give a lot of talks, and I almost never go to a bathroom at a university where the soap is not antimicrobial soap. And we know that that, that soap kills some of your good bacteria on your hands. Um, it actually gives you a dollop of some soap, which can be pathogenic. And normal old-fashioned soap works um, super well at controlling pathogens. And so we made this switch to the super bad stuff, and we made it so sort of completely that we don't even notice that we've made it. Um, and so simple, simple things like that, you know, a lot of it's about moderation, uh, which is a, you know, it's a terrible mes message, moderation, um, but it, it goes a long way. Well. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if we look 50 years down the road, we may be able to figure out how to garden specific species that benefit us in our homes and um, how to really shift to toward a different mindset about the life in our homes. But we're, st we're still a long way from understanding how to do that well. And, and so I think, you know, one of the take-homes then in that context is j just don't kill the stuff that you don't need to kill that might benefit you. Um, that, that seems obvious, but it's not how we live. I was wondering, you mentioned before, and, uh, you know, I know from a lot of your previous work, you work with a lot of citizen scientists. Um, and their responses kind of range from like being super thrilled to find out what's in their sourdough to being really dismayed <laughs> to finding out that, you know, their, you know, shower head is full of gunk. Do you think that any of your work has kind of changed any of their attitudes? Have you noticed 
any changes in your citizen scientists over time as you work with them? Um, so we, we're starting to study that now, and I wish we would have studied it earlier. Um, when we when we did all we did a lot of work on belly button biodiversity and studying bacteria and belly buttons and. We did a lot of that work with the idea that people were going home with a new sense of wonder about what lived on them. And in the years after, I, I wondered whether, you know, how often that was the case and how often we instead triggered people to um, maniacally scrub themselves in a way that was to their own detriment. Um, and, and so we've started to actually try to figure out what does it look like to to engage people in a way that leads them to, to more positive changes. Um, so far, the place we most obviously see it is in the food context, that people are really ready to embrace the idea that their food is alive, that their own bodies contribute to their, contribute to their food, that the dust in their house contributes to their food. And, and, and so a lot of our future focus is moving in that direction because it's, it's easy to see how, we engender positive change. Um, with things like the showerhead, it's trickier. Um, and I don't know that we have the answer. And we, we struggle with it, to be honest. Well, as someone who did actually contribute a belly button swab to your study. I um, think you really broke our Bethany. Yep. Yeah, I did. And uh, I thought it was awesome. So, I mean, I was I was super thrilled and excited to find out that there was bacteria living in my belly button. So you've got at least one fan. So did you go home and do anything different? No. I just kind of liked knowing it. Yeah, that's okay. That's a that's a win for us. I'll take that. <laughs> well, Rob, this has been a wild, somewhat unsettling and incredibly fun ride. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for, for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. If you would like to learn more about Rob Dunn and his book, Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live, we've linked to more information about his work and that very long-titled book at scienceforthepeople.ca. <laughs> While you're there, subscribe to the show. Give us a follow on Twitter or Facebook. Leave us a review telling us how weirded out you are right now by your showerhead. That website also has a link to our Patreon page. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us and keeping us going with a small monthly donation. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>